Welcome to Bunker's Cable. I'm Jordan. And I'm Reagan. This is a bi-weekly podcast from the Matthew B. Ridgeway Center for International Security Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. The core mission of the Ridgeway Center is to contribute to the intellectual and policy debates about the world's most pressing issues in international security studies. The Ridgeway Center focuses on a diverse range of challenges to international security, including the spread of international terrorism, counterinsurgency, the rise of transnational organized crime, the proliferation of nuclear weapons, emerging technology, and other critical issues faced by policymakers and the U.S. military. Named after the man best remembered for salvaging the United Nations efforts during the Korean War as the Commander-in-Chief of the UN troops, General Matthew Bunker Ridgway was also the Chief of Staff for the U.S. Army during the Vietnam War. And of course, the inspiration behind the name, Bunker's Cable. Each episode, we will delve into a topic within international security, speaking to professors about their research, commenting on current events, and discussing policy options. We want to highlight academic research while connecting the findings to current events. Our goal is to make today's research accessible to you. Today we have with us Elizabeth Shackelford, here to talk about her book, The Descent Channel, American Diplomacy in a Dishonest Age, as well as give us some insight into American diplomacy from her work experiences. Elizabeth Shackelford has a Bachelor of Arts from Duke University and a Juris Doctor from the University of Pittsburgh. She worked as a Foreign Service Officer with the United States State Department until December of 2017 when she resigned in protest of the Trump administration. Elizabeth Shackelford is now a Senior Fellow on U.S. Foreign Policy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and her opinion editorials and commentary have been published on outlets such as the Chicago Tribune, the Los Angeles Times, and Slate. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us today. Good to be here. So Reagan and I have had the pleasure of reading your book, uh, but some of our listeners have not. So could you give us a brief overview of what The Descent Channel is about? Sure. Um, So The Descent Channel has kind of two main parts. There's this main narrative storyline that tells my firsthand account of being a U.S. diplomat working in South Sudan ahead of and during the civil war there that began in 2013. And this storyline takes me as a young foreign service officer really learning you know, on the front lines um, as I see kind of the challenges of our foreign policy decisions, which seem really driven by short-term thinking and inertia rather than uh, the principles and long-term, long-term strategies that should really drive uh, what we do overseas. So that's the storyline. And then I pull back every few chapters and try and put what I'm experiencing there into kind of the bigger historical picture of U.S. foreign policy. I talk about, you know, kind of I, I pull back and I talk about human rights, for example, as the, the role that it's had in U.S. foreign policy over decades and how challenging that has been. I talk about uh, the challenges that the State Department faces being a you know, sorely underfunded and underutilized as one of our foreign policy tools. Um, and I, I talk about the role of U.S. embassies in terms of, uh, you know, what they do for American citizens overseas and for our foreign policy uh, decision makers back in Washington. So it's really, you know, you've got this story which is written for really any audience, it's, you know, accessible to a non-foreign policy audience. Uh, but I use that story to try and put in context the bigger picture of some of the challenges that U.S. foreign policy faces. And I try and do it in a really storytelling way so that it's um, a relatively easy read about a pretty difficult topic uh, that a lot of Americans don't understand. Yeah, that's definitely a great point, because when I was reading, I noticed it is very, you know, you are telling a story, but at the same time, there's the important, I guess, narration of the bigger picture, and not just the 
the case study that you're talking about. So definitely a, a good read that I recommend. So just to get started, can you talk about the importance of diplomacy as a tool in foreign policy? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an incredibly essential tool uh, and one that I don't think we default to um, as often as we should. Now, I will say, you know, I resigned in 2017, and that was at a time when um, diplomacy had really been underutilized, not, not only by the Trump administration, who I was serving at the time, but previously, most of my book is about uh, foreign policy under the Obama administration. And you've seen a trend, particularly during the past 20 years with the war on terror, where, you know, we tend to really prioritize uh, security solutions instead of diplomacy, um, diplomacy development, um, and other tools that we have in our foreign policy toolbox. So uh, what diplomacy is essentially is basically, I mean, it, it, the simplest, at the simplest level, it's persuasion, talking things out, figuring out what the other side wants, what you want, and finding some kind of middle ground. It doesn't always work, but it's always essentially essential to utilize it um, to the greatest extent possible. So uh, to put that into, let's say, present day context, you look at the Ukraine-Russia crisis that we're dealing with right now. The Biden administration came in, um, you know, at the very outset, the first speeches that Biden and his Secretary of State uh, Blinken did on foreign policy spoke specifically about really returning to diplomacy being in the lead of our foreign policy, you know, really returning to uh, addressing global solutions with, uh, with our partners and allies. And Diplomacy plays, I mean, it's the essential role in, in doing so. And I think that you've seen during this challenge that um, the Biden administration has really followed through on that. I mean, if you look at what happened in the lead up to the, the invasion by Russia, you saw this incredibly exhaustive effort by the Biden administration to work to get European and other NATO allies on board with the fact that you know, we, had to push, uh, we had to push collective action short of military action. But to use the the leverage that we had along with our allies and to make really a united front on that. Was it able to deter an invasion? No. But was it able to you know, sort of lay out a really, really solid uh, uniform response that I think is bigger than what we've seen in recent history? Um, it, it really has. And so I think that that is a very real success of seeing diplomacy in action and seeing that willingness of the Biden administration to do the legwork that it requires. I mean, diplomacy is the long game. It's not something that you do overnight. And you do it based on having those relationships in the first place and then just really taking the time to talk with your partners and allies, um, to talk with the adversaries as well and to do everything you can to avoid um, you know, hot conflict, which is really the, one of the major goals of diplomacy. Right, right. So your book details your experience in Juba in 2013 and kind of like the hardships that you went through, as you said, a new foreign service officer, but at the same time, the just the, the struggles of the state that you're in. Are there any parallels that you can draw from your experience there in Juba to something that's happening now? There, there are a lot of parallels, actually. I mean, if you ask most foreign service officers kind of, uh, you know, what your day-to-day -day life is, um, it really depends on which, on which post you're in, on the country you're in, and that type of thing. But at the same time, there are many parallels to how we conduct foreign policy overseas and 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 how we work to protect American citizens. So uh, some of the things that have happened in, in recent history that have really reminded me a lot of that experience. You know, one would be the evacuations in Afghanistan, uh, which was, you know, that happened back in August. It was something that the whole world was watching and it was really 
um, you know, quite horrific to, to see. Uh, but I will say that my experience running a far smaller evacuation in South Sudan um, gave me some insights to that process that I think people hadn't, you know, wouldn't be aware of from the outside if you haven't really seen how this works. Um, was it a horrible disaster? It absolutely was. Um, but there's only so much that you can do to really organize the evacuation of people from a dangerous war zone. Um, so I'd say that the lessons I learned then about you know, having those contacts on the ground and having those strong relationships that makes it easier for you to manage that type of situation. I mean, this is kind of the the most on the ground level of diplomacy, right? Like who, what contacts do you have in an area that make it easier for you to understand what the security situation is and how people can get to where they're, where they're going? Well, at that stage, we had basically pulled out, you know, most of our, practically shuttered our embassy there. Um, and we had had, um, much of our presence in Afghanistan had really been kind of bunkerized for a long time, which made it harder to, to have those types of contacts on the ground. So I think watching that um, uh, really was a reminder of some of the same challenges that we had in a much smaller scale in South Sudan. Um, in terms of kind of bigger picture, you know, things that lessons learned from my experience in South Sudan, the types of things that I was taking away in real time experiencing on the ground. Um, one of the biggest lessons was the problem of a lack of accountability. And the way that I saw this in South Sudan was, you know, at the smallest levels, uh, the US government and our um, partners in South Sudan were so hopeful that South Sudan was going to turn out to be a success story. We had uh, really put a lot of our eggs in that basket, uh, supporting South Sudan's, you know, the, the Southerners throughout the war um, with Sudan and supporting the referendum for independence. Um, that we kind of turned a blind eye to a lot of the really bad signs that the leaders of this new country were were just not good actors. Um, they did not have democratic tendencies. They did not have an interest in that um, type of future. And they really weren't that much better than the people they were replacing. So, but I saw our failure to call them out and our deep interest in maintaining um, kind of friendly conditions and access to the government as really clouding our ability to uh, to make hard calls and to call out our, our friends in South Sudan for, for abusing um, civilians, for horrific human rights abuses by the security services. And so that might happen on a smaller scale, but the question is what happens when you don't hold people to account or governments to account for the smaller violations? Um, and I'm not saying we can control the South Sudanese, but something to remember is that we were providing a tremendous amount of funding to this government throughout all of these years that basically kept it going and basically set that government up. So the question isn't, you know, what can we do to control bad actors? It's what can we do to basically signal that we don't approve and not to help bad actors continue those bad acts. So this lack of accountability there, I believe really laid the groundwork for um, the leadership in that, in that country, the president in particular, to continue down a very negative path that ultimately led to a, an incredibly destructive war. So you take that example of that lack of accountability, um, bad actors who are tolerated continue to get worse. Well, let's roll that out to Russia, right? 2008, Russia invades Georgia, uh, slap on the wrist, international partners condemn it, but don't really do much. 2014, Russia invades Crimea, similar response. There are sanctions, but you know we aren't really willing to do anything that's um, sufficiently, um, sufficiently serious in order to um, basically have consequences for the Russian government. I mean, the sanctions that we did at the time were more symbolic than really um, effective. 
And you see that basically, you know, President Putin finds out over time that he's able to keep pushing the envelope. And I think that played a huge role in um, in his decision to make this major gamble in Ukraine with this massive invasion. But it wasn't just those invasions um, in the past. It was the interference with U.S. elections. It was the you know misinformation campaigns and cyber attacks and other things that, you know, frankly, that hope that the United States and our partners had that. Putin would not go ultimately go too far. Well, we've we've proven that wrong. So I think that's a real lesson in um, the failure of accountability at the early stages when you might be able to make more of an impact. So the lack of accountability sounds like at the early stages has such a huge impact that it can lead to something like the invasion of Ukraine. Why does the problem of the lack of accountability keep happening? Why are we not intervening? at the beginning with diplomacy? So it's a, I mean, it's a good question because I think one thing you have to accept and acknowledge is that there is only so much that uh, the US government can do to persuade and influence other countries. And there's only so much that you can do with diplomacy. Um, I, I would say the diplomacy that would have been more effective in these early stages is less the diplomacy with the adversary you're dealing with and more diplomacy with the allies and partners that you can bring on board to use non-military tools to persuade either a change in behavior or basically to raise the stakes for worse behavior. Sanctions in particular, and we see this now, and we've used sanctions, we've used sanctions in South Sudan, we've used sanctions in a wide variety of countries. They're a very tricky, difficult tool. They are most effective when you have a lot of countries on board and when you don't have major countries that are giving the, the bad actor at issue an out, basically. So um, when you're dealing with okay, well, we're gonna stop funding X country or we're gonna stop funding this issue or we're gonna stop trading with this country. Um, that only has so much impact if you've got another major player that's coming behind um, to provide cover. So it's less though to me about what we can necessarily change because there are limits on that. I mean, the United States is not, you know, it's not omnipotent, we can't, we can't influence everything we want. For me, it's more, you know, kind of the first do no harm principle. Um, and you can get others on board to make the cost of, you know, major violations of international laws and norms. Um, and, and doing so using diplomacy, you can kind of make the cost, you can raise the, the cost to that country of committing those violations. But what you're also doing at the same time is you're not inadvertently helping those efforts. So let's say back to the South Sudan example, we were very hesitant to cut off military assistance to the South Sudanese government at the outside. We recognized that the South Sudanese government was a terrible actor and that their military was doing horrible things. But there was this uh, one thing we were partnering on them with and uh, going after some bad actors that were in the region that had really little to do with South Sudan, but we were training the South Sudanese government to work with Uganda and others uh, to target a different enemy. Um, our prioritization was the short-term interest in stability in that region. And so we were willing to look past the violations that that military was conducting in order to continue helping that military to do something that we thought was more in our interest. So a little bit of a roundabout way of saying that the challenge is ensuring that we're not helping make the problem worse, even if we cannot stop the problem from happening. Again, kind of zooming out to, to today, looking at the Russia-Ukraine situation, we're responding by bringing together a, a wide range of partners to 
raise the cost of this invasion on Russia. Do we think it's necessarily going to change Putin's, idea, Putin's mind? No. But what we're preventing him from doing is using Western money um, to fund his war against Ukraine. And I think that it's very important, even if we can't change that situation, that we are not implicated in helping to make it easier for him to have the money and the supplies and the funds that he needs to do that. We've been talking maybe more so about the failures of diplomacy or where diplomacy falls short. How successful would you say diplomacy has been in the past in terms of obtaining security objectives? And I do realize that a war doesn't have to be averted or a conflict doesn't have to be averted in order for diplomacy to be successful. But can you talk about something like that? So one of the challenges of effective diplomacy is that it tends to be something that that prevents something from happening. So if you don't see it happening, then it's hard to attribute that benefit to diplomacy, right? So diplomacy, it's, again, it's a tool. It's not, um, and it's a much quieter tool than let's say, you know, military hardware. I mean, people find it very reassuring that to see um, a government respond to bad acts with the use of the military, because it's physical, you can see it happening and you can kind of see the impact of it. Um, diplomacy, on the other hand, is extremely, I mean, it's extremely quiet. Most of it happens in the background. Most of it um, is conducted to make sure that things don't end up on the front page of the New York Times. So it's hard to pinpoint a lot of that. But I will say um, examples of diplomacy that have been, you know, really effective over time. I mean, it's a tough example to use right now, but the Iran nuclear deal, I mean, that was a, a, a textbook example of the use of diplomacy to achieve a security end. Now that was all thrown out the window when the United States government abandoned it. And now we're back in this situation where it's very hard to get back in because the US unilaterally abandoned it. But you can still look at that as an incredibly solid example of diplomacy at work. It took years of, of diplomacy with our friends and allies to get everyone on board with a sanctions regime that would put enough pressure on the Iranian government to ensure that it would come to the table. So that was that pressure that you were using to bring them to the table. There were also, I uh, you know it, this is kind of a great example of like using the entire breadth of what you have in the foreign policy toolbox, because you also had, you know, the, the military, um, the military matters in the background that could also put pressure on, on Iran because of our, you know, the, the use that we had in that region and our ability, uh, our ability to strike if we wanted to. But really it was diplomacy that led the charge there. And it took years of it to lay the groundwork where you had the right combination of factors to bring everyone to the table and to reach a, a realistic target, which was to get these assurances on the nuclear front. It didn't address out everything. It didn't address human rights issues or terrorism. It addressed a very specific target and, and it did so successfully. And had we not abandoned it, I think that um, I think even the, the biggest opponents of the deal at the time would agree now that we're in a worse situation than we were um, a few years ago when we had secured that. So I think that's one of the best um, examples that you have in recent, recent history of just kind of traditional diplomacy working across the board. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I was really eager to hear you talk about the Iran nuclear deal. Um, so you keep mentioning that diplomacy is a tool and that it's not always able to be 100% effective on its own. What are some other tools that you feel work really well with diplomacy to achieve security objectives? So if you if you look at the way that our different tools work, diplomacy is a tool in and of itself. 
right? Because because what you do with diplomacy, let's say you can build relationships, you build trust. I mean, diplomacy is about having those those connections so that you're able to get that phone call when something's about to happen. So that somebody, on, you know, your counterpart in another country is, is willing to come to the table and talk honestly about issues. Um, not always honestly, but I think that's another level of it, right? You've got to know what you're dealing with on the other side. So knowing and that those relationships and those people is really important too. Diplomacy is a tool itself, but it is also a tool that leverages the other tools that we have. So diplomacy often, the, the strength and the impact of diplomacy often depends on the tools that diplomacy is using to leverage. So let's say financial economic tools. Sanctions are one example. Trade is another example, right? So you can use diplomacy to build relationships to reach trade agreements that connect two countries. And again, this is more of a long-term picture, right? But those types of things are the types of things that make it less likely that countries will go to war with each other. Um, because once you've built that trading relationship, um, it does become a little bit, uh, like it raises the cost of conflict between the two. Uh, we're seeing that right now. I mean, it, you, you saw how hard it was for Europe to get on board initially with really difficult sanctions regime, regime against Russia because of their higher level of trade. The United States doesn't have a high level of trade with Russia. So, so again, you've got that economic integration becomes a tool that you can use to leverage um, to address um, security imperatives and security interests. Uh, you also, I mean, diplomacy also utilizes our, our military um, capacity as well. I mean, when you come to the table um, for negotiations of any form, you have behind you the weight of what you have. You have the skill of the individual doing it. Um, and there was actually recently a really good uh, daily podcast, uh, the New York Times Daily, that did a, a piece on on sanctions and talked about some of the individuals who played very serious roles in bringing people to, to the table. So you have the skills of the individual um, who's engaged in these negotiations, but you also, that person's skill matters, but also the array of power that they have behind them in that country, economic, military, um, you know, et cetera, that all helps really shape how effective diplomacy is. So um, it's really, it's a tool and it's also a way to utilize our other tools. Um, and it comes to the table in terms of, you know, national security interests of the United States in that if you are able to use, uh, effectively use the pressure of that leverage that you have, whether it's military or economic, and those are kind of the two big ones, um, a skilled diplomatic approach can utilize that leverage to reach a conclusion before you get to the point of, of actual conflict. I think you've made some really good points about individuals having an impact with diplomacy, but also diplomacy as a tool to uplift other tools that we have, like military, like economics. Do you see a way for the American public to care more about diplomacy? Because it is sort of a behind the scenes tool that we don't always get to see. And when it is effective, you don't hear too much about it. You hear about the failures. Is there a way for us to care about these individual actors and also the long-term effects that aren't these big militaries that we can actually see? It's a good question because I love raising this particular point, which is U.S. kind of general public respect for the U.S. military is not organic. It is, it is created uh, through a very intentional process. Uh, the, the Pentagon, uh, and CIA, by the way, both have Washington, both have offices in Hollywood that are geared towards liaising 
with um, popular culture. Um, every time you see military hardware in a movie, that is because they are working with consultants from the Pentagon who provide these military hardware pieces for free in order to have some say over and influence over the actual script of the film that they are assisting with. Uh, I know. It's shocking. Um, CIA does as well. They do a lot of liaising with Hollywood. And this is one of the reasons why like spies look really cool in movies and diplomats don't. Um, it's it's actually quite, uh, I'm quite fabricated um, very intentionally. I mean, it's a, public, it's a public diplomacy campaign that other aspects of our foreign affairs has going on in the United States. And there's this really long history um, in the State Department that goes back decades where there was this very real fear about the US government, the quote unquote deep state, using domestic propaganda to influence America. So there was a law, um, I'm blanking on the name of it right now, I should get it back to you guys, but there was a law passed decades ago that basically said that the state, US State Department was prohibited from uh, conducting any form of propaganda in the inside the United States. Now that law has been revised and gutted in large part. So at this stage, the US State Department can do a lot of that outreach. The problem is there is basically a hangover in the State Department that thinks that it is against our regulations for us to engage in that type of thing. So we really, we really don't invest at all in promoting the State Department and the work of diplomats and diplomacy back home. We really count on other organizations uh, outside uh, the government to do that for the State Department. And you've got some organizations that try very hard to kind of promote that story. You have the Morgan, American uh, Foreign Service uh, Association, which is basically like the Foreign Service Officers uh, Union. And they try and do a lot of outreach and promotion, but Americans don't know about it because they're not being told. Uh, I personally think that stories about diplomacy are fascinating and sexy and cool and can be just as big on the big screen as military uh, military movies, but uh, you know, I, I haven't really won that over yet. I guess we've got a new show coming out about diplomacy with um, some big movie star. We'll see if that goes anywhere. But it's, uh, I mean, it's it's a fascinating story. So I think for starters, uh, the U.S. government needs to make the case, um, and there is the kind of pop culture way of making the case, which is uh, quite easy to do. People love a good story, and let me tell you, from being a U.S. diplomat. There's some very good stories out there. Uh, but there's also just the advocacy. I mean, people don't really fully understand that um, that the State Department is so dramatically underfunded compared to, let's say, our military. Um, it's And people don't understand that it's not like you're going to take money away from the military to put it into the State Department. But if you grow our military and you do not correspondingly grow the State Department and build up and, and give it that ability to conduct its mission, um, then you're really undercutting not just diplomacy, but the effectiveness of all of our tools. Because again, diplomats leverage our military to, you know, our military strength to try and keep us out of conflict. So I think I think building awareness is a really is a really key element of trying to make Americans just understand better the importance of this of this tool we have. I am actually just speechless, but yeah. also not surprised. Um, our listeners will not be able to see, but our jaws were dropped. Yeah, we were really just like, oh my goodness, wow, the whole time you were answering that. Um, so just to switch gears a little bit, refocusing to the title of your book, The Descent Channel, an American, or American Dis Diplomacy in a Dishonest Age, can you talk to us a little bit about the reasoning behind the title? Does it signify anything? Where did you exactly get that from? So The Descent Channel itself is this... Um, 
kind of hallowed tool that you have in the State Department. Um, it's been around since the Vietnam War. It was created at a time when U.S. diplomats uh, and, and kind of civil servants in the State Department were exceedingly upset with the direction of the Vietnam War and found it very unjust and that it was not in the interest of U.S. national security. So you had this rising level of dissent with the, the State Department that is really not typical. I mean, diplomats are, are not really the ones who tend to kind of stand up and protest. It's, it's not in their nature. So uh, there was this sense in the administration that you had to do something not really to incorporate that criticism, but something really to kind of release the pressure, something where people felt that they could have their 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 thoughts and their views heard. So they created this official channel inside our communication system. Uh, cables are what we use to kind of communicate back and forth between the field and Washington. And so there's the ability to write, to draft a dissent cable to make official complaints about our, our about our policies. And the system works in a way where you you basically can send um, anyone um, can inside the State Department can write a dissent and, and it has to be responded to by the Secretary of State's office. So I actually went through that process with our policy on South Sudan and I could tell a long story about how that didn't exactly work the way I hoped it would. But um, that's uh, that was kind of the the end goal, well, the end of, of my entire process of trying to influence and change our policy on South Sudan. And it was, uh, let's just say, underwhelming at best. But, um, you know, so the dissent channel was really kind of that that climatic point of, of my efforts on South Sudan. But the American diplomacy in a dishonest age is kind of about the much bigger picture of how we purport to be out there in the world promoting uh, values of democracy and human rights and, uh, you know, kind of a free society, this liberal internationalist approach the world, but we really, that's not what we do in practice. And in my view, we pretend to, we, we put it out publicly that we do, but at the end of the day, most of our decisions are driven by short-term security or financial interests, uh, rather than driven by this longer-term belief that we do have, that a more democratic and free world will be safer and more prosperous for Americans too. Um, so that a la carte approach that we take to um, to promoting our values, in my opinion, has been really um, the dishonesty of our, of our approach to our foreign policy. And this has been true of administrations on both sides of the aisle. It is not a part of this issue. Um, it is something that we have seen uh, pretty consistently, regardless of who has been in office. So uh, my view is that if we, it's not that we should promote those values just for the value's sake. It is that if we were looking at a long-term perspective, which is very hard to do, in you know uh, the political realities that we have of you know, kind of four-year administrations, um, but if we looked at the longer term, if we were more inclined to stick with those with those values, to hold our partners and friends accountable when they violate those, that that would ultimately uh, promote our own national security interests and security in the long run better. Would you be able to talk about some of the? dissents that go through the dissent channel, either generally or from your experience, just so we have a better understanding of the types of issues that are being brought up through this channel? So for starters, it's very hard, unless the information is leaked to the press, to find out any information about dissent. Because, I mean, the system is designed that way. It is not designed to foster debate over our policy failures. It is designed, as I mentioned, as a, as a pressure release to make people feel like they're doing something. Uh, would it be better if it actually promoted debate? Sure, but one thing that I learned as I was researching this process, I'd heard about the Defense Channel. I didn't know a lot about it. 
So I tried to look up in our system unclassified versions. It's non-searchable. I mean, if I wanted to find out what we've been reporting, if I'm inside the U.S. government in the State Department, I want to find out what we've been reporting on the economic situation, you know, in, I don't know, Sudan, I, I can look that up as long as it's not at a very high classified level or if I'm at that classification. Um, you cannot search for dissent. So I couldn't find a single example of something that someone had submitted unless it had been leaked to the press. Now, the idea of the dissent channel is that it's meant to, it it's purported again to promote and foster dialogue over these issues. But if it's, you know, my dissent that I wrote, it wasn't classified and nobody in the department could find it because again, it's just unsearchable. Um, so the idea is that you really can't um, find a way to build that dialogue. I understand the State Department now, after there were several leaked uh, dissent channel cables over the past few years, they're looking into ways to try and reform the system so that it can build some dialogue so that people do have an opportunity, not only to speak out, but to hear other people speaking out within the realms of the department. Now, in terms of some other examples, you might've seen them in the press. They have been leaked over the past few years. Uh, several, uh, when under the Trump administration, you had a huge um, uh, dissent cable that was leaked to the press um, against the Muslim travel ban. You had a, a cable that was leaked to the press about the situation in Syria a few years ago. You've had cables leaked to the press about the, um, the lack of preparation for the evacuations in Afghanistan and the failure to get our friends and partners from Afghanistan out before the fall of Kabul. Uh, so those are the types of issues, kind of high level issues that you've seen defense in. Um, there aren't that many. It's really not the culture of the State Department to um, to dissent. And I think that that's uh, one of the shortcomings there. I think that we would have a better foreign policy picture if we promoted more open dialogue and pushing back on the status quo. And I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, if you only have this outlet for, it's kind of like a void, you know, it's really just for official purposes to get the information to a higher level, but there's not a promise of any action coming from from those uh, dissents. And it seems to me it would kind of make more sense to get the, I guess, feedback from people on the ground. You know, you said this is very hands-on. The people that are there are the people that see everything. So if the higher people are not there, it's hard for them to be able to maneuver and adjust when, when necessary because things do change and, you know, it doesn't always turn out the way we think it will, or we predict it will. So it would makes it kind of would make sense do something about the 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 feedback that's given. But I know that you know nothing is a perfect system. But hopefully, we'll they'll move something like that in the future. So what I'm thinking right now is just that there are so many diplomatic negotiations happening all over the world. I mean, everywhere, big ones that we're hearing in the news every day. Are there any that really stick out to you or any that like really concern you or that you're really following and interested in? I mean, all over the world, we've, you know, we're participating in, um, in diplomacy. I mean, there are, there's negotiations and there's just kind of background work that's happening. Right now, some of the most important things are, you know, what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, of course. Now that's, I think there is less to be said for negotiations with Russia. I think at this stage that's, um, you know, I mean, you should never give up on diplomacy. And uh, we're in a stage, uh, you know, at the time of this taping that there is still some, there are promise of some talks happening. But I certainly, 
I think sometimes that's um, mostly a stalling effort if you don't see any middle ground that the two parties involved can reach, let's say, in this situation. I, I don't. I mean, Russia wants to control Ukraine. Ukraine does not want to be controlled by Russia. It's hard to find a middle ground in between there. Uh, but let's say other issues that you that you see, though, is, as I said, more on the kind of allied front is the negotiations and the discussions over what what the rest of the world is going to do. Um, some of this is very symbolic. Uh, you have the recent UN Security Council, sorry, UN um, uh, UN General Assembly vote on to condemn the Russian invasion. What happens in the UN might not seem like it's all that important, but this is where kind of the role of all of our embassies around the world uh, comes in. I mean, as a as a Foreign Service officer, one of the things that I would frequently do, you know, even in South Sudan or Somalia, there would be a vote in the UN General Assembly on some resolution, and it would have to do with a country that has nothing to do with the region that I'm in. But we want to get the bulk of support around us. And that's one of the reasons that you have partners and you want to be able to rely on them. If the vote is on you know, some issue in South America, we still want our friends and partners in Africa to vote with us on it, even if that's not an issue that's close and dear to their heart. So you know, one of the things that we would have to do is go to our, our counterparts of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and whatever country we're in and talk to them about that upcoming vote you know, and ask for their support on that. Um, and you know you can kind of see who your friends are when that comes up. So that vote, the recent vote that happened in the UN um, General Assembly, you know, you ended up with a, a huge swath of countries that not only uh, not only were voting in favor of condemning the Russian invasion, but were also co-sponsoring it. At the end of the day, five countries out of 190 something countries in the UN voted against it, um, and that means a lot. And you look at who that club is, and that club is. Russia, Belarus, Syria, Eritrea, one more, there were five. Uh, but it's, you know, you're building those relationships, not only so that you can influence what happens in that country where you're serving as a diplomat, but so you can influence, um, you know, kind of what the global community has to say on other issues. So um, I would say there's been a lot going on at the UN. And I think that being able to have that kind of overwhelming support for something does matter at the end of the day. Is it going to change Russia's mind? No. But might it build more of a coalition to put more more economic pressure on um, you know on Russia in this case? And I think that that I think that is true. So that's going on as well. That um, that type of negotiation and diplomacy in the background, uh, you know, does have a big impact on how strong a global reaction is to some to some behavior that we'd like to change. It has been extremely interesting to hear about diplomacy and the other tools that we use from your experiences in work. Um, and I think something you said is a perfect note to end this episode on. You should never give up on diplomacy. Yes, we should never give up on it. So thank you for talking with us, Lizzie. You can find Lizzie's book online at amazon.com or at your local Barnes Noble or Target. I really recommend getting it. It's a great read. Um, in more than one ways. Um, and you can join us in the next two weeks to discuss a really interesting look at urban violence in the global south, which is brought to us by Dr. Glass, Dr. Siebel, and Dr. Williams. Thank you, Lizzie. We really appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much.